Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs, and this is season number six. My guest today is Dr. Chris Kirk, PhD, exercise scientist, researcher, and strength and conditioning coach who specializes in combat sports performance and improving athlete health across the lifespan. In this episode, Chris and I discuss his background in academia as a researcher, as well as a practitioner working on the front lines of sport. We'll talk about how Chris got into training MMA athletes and his research in mixed martial arts quantifying what fighters actually do and how that can inform practice for both the athlete and the coach. Chris also shares the harsh reality of periodizing training in MMA athletes in combat sports, the all or nothing approach that still exists in weight cutting, and many of the modern day challenges that these athletes still face. So lots of great insights here from Chris, practical takeaways for coaches and athletes as well. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we get started, a quick announcement. Enrollment is open for the summer cohort of the Football Performance Nutrition Online course. Level up your evidence-based knowledge around nutrition and football. Learn from leading experts in the NFL and NCAA in the 12 modules and over 12 hours of course content. Earn CEU credits, connect with monthly mentors, and expand the breadth of your performance nutrition knowledge. Right now, you can still save $50 off the cost of the course using the promo code SUMMIT. Again, you can save $50 off the cost of the course. Use the promo code SUMMIT. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football and join us for the summer group. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with Dr. Chris Kirk. Chris, really appreciate you covering out some time today. No problem, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Listen, I'm really looking forward to diving into all things uh, mixed martial arts and combat sport nutrition. Before we do that, though, it'd be great to hear more about your background, how you got interested in the sport and into into your research career. Yeah. um, Well, in terms of both getting into combat sports, MMA, and also becoming uh, an academic and a researcher, I've kind of had a circuitous route into both. Um, Obviously, because... Being in being English, I grew up mainly watching football. But then in my early teens, nice. I got into, yeah, uh, soccer for the North American listeners, obviously. Appreciate um, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, then around about my early teens, I actually got into basketball because obviously it was the Chicago nice. Bulls, Michael Jordan era, um, the dream team had just been in the Barcelona Olympics and all that. So I got into basketball and that was my obsession until probably my mid to late 20s. Um, and it got to a point where well, mid-20s, I was playing for two teams at the same time. So I was playing six or seven nights a week. Um, Amazing. Four of those nights at a relatively high level for the UK. And it got to the end of the season. I was just completely burnt out. I didn't want to look at another basketball. I thought I'd take a couple of months off and do something completely different. Um, and I'd always liked watching boxing. I'd always liked watching a couple of combat sports here and there, but I'd never done any. Mm-hmm. And I knew there was a couple of boxing clubs in my local area. Um, but I also saw that there was a Taekwondo club. And I thought, well, that's something I've completely different, never done it before. I thought I'd go and have a go at it, have a look at it. Um, and after a couple of months of doing Taekwondo, I started to really enjoy that. And then I noticed on late night TV, this is probably around 2007, 2008. On late yeah. night TV, there was this uh, MMA promotion called Cage Rage which old, old school MMA fans might remember. It's uh, Anderson Silva spent a bit of time in there, Michael Bisping, yep. Dan Hardy, they all came from there. Um, and I thought, I'll just have a watch of it. You know, it, it's kicking, it's punching, it's similar to Taekwondo. And before I knew it, I was hooked. And before I knew it, I was looking for a local MMA club. Um, and there just happened to be one in the town run by a guy called Rob Sinclair, who was British British lightweight champion for a while. He fought in Bellator in a couple of the uh, couple of their lightweight tournaments. Um, and I started going to those sessions. Then I started going to jiu-jitsu sessions. And nice. literally what became those couple of months away from basketball, I've not played basketball since. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 wow. just been, it's just been combat sports. From going from obsessed with basketball, every now and then I'll chuck a ball around. But no, yeah. it's, all, it's all combat sports now. Nice. And on that journey then from 
team sport, stick and ball sport into combat sport, you know, before you're getting into research, are you then, you know, competing yourself? Are you coaching athletes? How does that transition look like? Yeah. Um, so I did compete a few times in Taekwondo. Um, I've competed a few times in jiu-jitsu and I did start training MMA with the intention of having a couple of fights and being yeah. a fighter. Um, but after about 18 months when I started sparring with people who I class as real fighters, it was pretty clear that I'm not a fighter. <laughs> it's a tough, <laughs> tough old game, isn't it? Very much. Um, and I never, I never got over the flinch of a punch coming at you or a kick coming at you. I never got over that flinch response of, oh, I don't like this. Mm. Uh, so I quickly came to the conclusion that attempting to fight would not be in my best interest. It would not work out well for me. But by that point, I, uh, from about 2006, 2007, I was actually a full-time lecturer in further education colleges, which in the UK is 16 to 19. You finish yep. school at 16, then you go on to college, 16 to 19. So I was already teaching and lecturing in sports science in that area. And the college that I was working for at the time, they set up a program called the Elite Athlete Program. Now, because my background was sports science and strength and conditioning and sports performance, they asked me to essentially run the elite athlete program from a strength and conditioning standpoint. And that was probably around about 2013, 2014 when we started okay. that. Uh, so that's how I started coaching strength and conditioning directly with youth athletes. Um, and a few of those youth athletes were from combat sports, a couple from jiu-jitsu, a couple from uh, kickboxing, taekwondo. And that's what really started to bring me in more to the coaching side of things alongside my teaching. Um, yeah. And if we pause there, Chris, you know, at that time with the young athletes that you had, what were some of the things that you're working on then? And now obviously fast forwarding a decade later, looking back on it, you know, are there, what elements might you change or, or how do you view that those same problems? Um, to be honest, I think there's a lot of parallels between the kind of work I'm doing now with adult athletes and mm -hmm. the work I was doing back then with 16-year-old athletes. In the, in the UK, the strength and conditioning support for, for children, for young athletes, doesn't exist. It's just mm -hmm. not there. Um, whereas in North America, it's, it's, it's a very well-structured, very well-developed process where if you're playing for your school team, you will have some form of strength training alongside it. Mm -hmm. In the UK, it's you play your sport, and anything else that you want to do, you can do, but you play your sport. Yeah. So by the time the 16, 17-year-old uh, students, athletes ended up in my program at the college, it was really a case of, right, we're starting from scratch. I'm teaching you how to squat. I'm teaching you how to hinge. I'm teaching you how to land in an athletic position. I'm teaching you how to jump. It was absolutely just basic things, just getting people ready to train. Yeah. Now that I'm working with adult combat sport athletes, it's still kind of the same thing <laughs> because combat sport athletes in, in the UK especially, they don't tend to come from traditional sports. It's, yeah. It seems to be a culture thing where if you're into combat sports, it's because you weren't didn't grow up playing and being into other sports. You might yeah. get one, one or two people who played a bit of soccer, played a bit of rugby, um, a couple of the female fighters might have played netball early on, but they don't tend to come from a sporting background, which means they've not come from any sort of strength training background either. So my first, essentially my first couple of camps working with most of the fighters I've worked with is very much been teach you how to squat, teach you how to hinge, teach you how to land in athletic position, just teach you how to train, I don't use the word properly, but more appropriately, so you can actually then start building on those things in the camps after that so i think the parallels between the two are very very similar and i, I don't necessarily think that would be the case if i was working in sport like rugby for instance where the mm -hmm. strength training the power training is built in at a young age it's a really key point though isn't it because in this age of the in, of instagram and showing all these workouts on online and young athletes are seeing that you know for an mma fighter they need to develop these qualities that you're trying to achieve at the highest level and so we don't need to turn them into professional Olympic weightlifters or to be doing these types of, if they don't have these fundamental patterns down, then, you know, we're going to be struggling to be able to, to get the strength of the fitness that you're after. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. And if they've, let's say they've done seven years of MMA or jujitsu or combat sports by the time they come to me, 
their bodies used to be in a very being in very different positions mm-hmm. than they need to be when they're lifting. So a lot of the time you're trying to find ways of uh, make sure their body can train in an optimal position without changing the natural positions their bodies are coming into. So like rounded out shoulders, more of a arched back from jiu-jitsu positions. We still need to make them strong in those positions, mm-hmm. but having them go straight into cleans or snatches or even snatch pulls, that might be too big a step in the first six months, 12 months. It might just case of reinforcing those, those smaller body parts before they move on to those more impulsive, heavy actions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, in basketball, similarly, in terms of the, the different tensions that build up and challenges with movement patterns of just loading a specific pattern, if the athlete struggles to even get into it efficiently, it becomes a problem and we start creating more problems than we're solving. So the example that you're giving there, what are some of the little exercises or the or the, yeah, the exercises you might use to be able to start to work around those things? Because as you mentioned, your fighter needs to be in those positions and needs to be strong in those positions. So we're not trying to undo some of these things, are we? No, no. Um, I, again, I try and keep it as simple as possible. So in terms of the lower back issues that everyone involved in a grappling sport or a striking sport has, just being able to get them to hinge correctly and be able to keep their shoulder blades in an optimal position whilst they're hinging, that's something that I spend quite a lot of time on over the first two camps before even loading that position and when I say load, we are putting some load onto the bar, but we're not mm-hmm. necessarily going up to 100, 100, 120 kilograms or anything excessive. It's more about can they feel that hinge position whilst keeping their back in a flat position, whilst keeping the shoulder blades pulled back? Can they apply that movement to their body, that position to their body? And then can they start to feel it when they're actually in grappling actions or when they're moving around? So that's more what I'm thinking along develop uh, those lines um and, and might all, you use uh, chris like dumbbells kettlebells i've seen some physios using like uh tape across the shoulder blades like any any little tools or tricks that you use to help facilitate that sensation of, of keeping those shoulder blades together whilst developing that hinge i always try to get them to think about and imagine having a watermelon in between their shoulder blades and right. i just want them to squeeze and hold the watermelon there and just squeeze it enough so a little bit of juice might be coming out of the watermelon Okay, nice. I, like that. I don't yeah, because I don't agree with mechanically restricting person's movement because yeah, then that's getting them to rely on that mechanical External restriction. Cue. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Whereas if I get them to think about just holding that watermelon there between their shoulder blades, rather than saying to someone, pull your shoulders back, if you just think about that tension of holding that there, I think everything else then falls into place. And also things like on the hinge, I try not to tell them okay, now stand up out the hinge, I tell them to push the hips forward and squeeze their butt cheeks at the top of the motion. So rather mm. than thinking about I've got to move, I can think about which body parts they need to move. And it's all just little internal cues like that. And would you spend some time then, you know, for a coach listening in now, would you spend some time you know, with body weight or dowels or very little load to be able to facilitate that? You know, in terms of rather than loading to a certain level right off the bat? It entirely depends on how well the person can do it in the first instance. So mm-hmm. I've um, about a year ago, I started working with uh, with the young fighter in my area who, when I watched him move on the mats, I was thinking, oh, it's going to take six months of preparatory work <laughs> to, get him, to get him ready to use these movements. Well, literally the second session in the gym, he was actually able to perform the movements appropriately. Yeah. So we started loading him almost straight away. Whereas I've worked with, this person wasn't a fighter, he was actually an American football player uh, in, in the UK. And he could not hinge even a little bit. I thought he'd be able to uh, move relatively well because he'd come from rugby previously. But I, I saw that as soon as he tried to hinge, his lower back was rounding out, his shoulders were dropping round, and his knees were bending each time he tried to hinge. So at that point, it was a case of just having a wooden dowel held at the top of his head, held at the bottom of his lower back, and just feeling that motion whilst keeping his back tracked to the wooden dowel. It was, I think, eight to nine weeks of just that action, 10 reps, three sets in each session, just to try and teach that motion before we even put a, an empty barbell in his hand or a kettlebell or anything. So it is a case of if they can't do the movement, let's try and 
teaching them movement through things like wooden dowels. If they can do the movement, load them. And then there's multiple steps all the way through, but it is entirely based on who you've got in front of you at the time. It's a great example to show that if you take as long as it takes to develop the, what you're after. And so that example of say, hey, we're going to, if we need four to six weeks to get this right, then we're going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until the athlete can feel it versus your first example. Hey, a day or two later, this athlete's got it. Let's, let's, we're off to the races. And, yeah. you know, if we maybe segue now into, you know, your, your career and research. And so, how did that come about? And can we start diving into to some of the work that you did in your PhD? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I I started my research career in 2012. Um, and I have to be honest here, I, I graduated from an undergraduate degree in 2003. And I, I was a terrible student. The 20-year-old tw- version of me was not a good student. I went to, I went to all my classes, went to all my lectures, did nothing outside of that though. I scraped through with a bang average grade. So when it came to my wanting to do a master's degree, I decided that I'd, I was going to do it properly this time. I actually wanted to gain something from it and do it properly. Mm. So I approached um, Dr. Howard Hurst at the University of Central Lancashire and spoke to him about doing a, a master's by research under him. And by this point, I was obsessed with MMA. Mm. And I'd seen, um, seen a few YouTube videos of Vanderlei Silva training what was supposed to be altitude training and um the videos are still on there because i checked a few months ago he was basically doing a circuit training session in his in his gym where he had uh, a boxing head guard on a a load of tape over his nose (laughs) and then a snorkel coming out the top of the mask um and it was all about restricting the airflow coming into the body Mm -hmm. so i went to i went to dr hurst at uclan and um asked him should I'd like to do a study on this. Does this type of training actually help MMA fighters? And he said, okay, it's not a bad idea. Spend a week, go away, and find all the studies that currently exist on MMA. So I did. I went away, and this was 2012, and I think mm-hmm. I came back with five studies, five papers in total, wow. none, of which, none of which were describing anything to do with the training of the fighters, nothing that described uh, what they actually do in their sessions, what they actually do in competition, I think there was a couple of papers that looked at uh, RPE and lactate from um, from competition from John Antman in yep. um, Minnesota or Montana, I think he's based somewhere in the mountain region. Yep. Um, but that was it. So he, um, Howard, convinced me that right, we've got to come right back to square one and literally just describe the sport. How are they training? What are they actually doing? So I spent a couple of years working on that on that master's project where we tried to measure the external load of the different types of training actions that they perform in MMA. Mm-hmm. And then we used um, accelerometry, lactate, and time motion analysis to look at a series of sparring bouts. So we had the participants take part in three by five minute rounds and just described what, a, what an MMA sparring bout looks like and what the outcome of those bouts are in terms of internal load and external load. Yep. And at that point, I wasn't doing this thinking, I'm going to go on and be a HE academic, I'm going to do a PhD, I'm going to be a researcher. I just wanted to get my master's so I could improve my current work I was doing. Yeah, for sure. But those two years, I just fell in love with the research process. I fell in love with the idea of we can describe a sport by observing it, by mm. collecting and by collecting data, by uh, doing different analyses on different aspects of it. And we can potentially help coaches improve the athlete's performance and for that point i was hooked i just wanted to be a researcher i well i do i do want to be a researcher but i want to be what um uh my supervisor my phd professor james morton what he calls a pracademic so someone who's an academic but built around the practical work and the practical application of the work yeah it's amazing to be able to apply that into real world settings because that you know that's obviously where the rubber meets the road and and to be able to help athletes achieve those those performance heights and to be able to overcome things is is a great part of the the process as well and you know for yourself with doing the phd now you know what were some of the big questions then that you're trying to answer around the challenges with mma i mean sort of get to maybe today what you believe some of those challenges are but if we you know stick with, with some of the research that you did again you know what were some of those questions that you're trying to answer yeah um so 
as I said, in, in 2012, when I came back to Howard with those five papers, we still didn't have a description of what they were doing in their training. We were able to develop or potentially develop a system where we could observe their training through accelerometry. But between the four years of me finishing my master's and starting my PhD, still no one had actually done any studies observing what the fighters were doing in the training sessions or mm. talking to coaches about what the coaches think they're doing in their training sessions. So when I approached uh, Professor James Morton at Liverpool, John Moores, about doing my PhD there, that was the question that we had. What are they actually doing in the training sessions? What does an MMA training session look like? What kind of internal loads are they experiencing? What external loads are they experiencing? And what's the result of that training? How does that uh, reflect on the on the fighters' fatigue, on their readiness to, to perform? And for me, if we don't understand those questions about a sport, then we can't intervene and help that sport. If we don't know what a football player is doing, how can we possibly improve what they're doing? <clears throat> Support what they're doing. Same thing with a track athlete, with a boxer, with a rugby player. Without understanding or having a measurement of what the fighters are currently doing and what the coaches currently think they're achieving, then we have no way of intervening and helping. And that was essentially the starting point of my PhD research, trying to describe what the fighters and the coaches are doing in the training sessions to then lead on to, well, this is how we can help. This can be improved. That part's being done perfectly. Leave that alone and things like that. What are some of those specifics then, uh, Chris, when we talk about understanding the sport? Obviously, MMA is challenging in that they're doing so many different things compared to some other sports. You know, what were some of the uh, you know, the highlights there the, the, that you're able to tease out? Well, yeah, I think it's quite good there, Mark, where you uh, straight away mentioned that MMA is such a complex sport with so many different mm -hmm. things. And it might be a little bit of, bias here for myself, but I, I do think that MMA is the most complex physical sport mm -hmm. that there currently is because the athletes are expected to do so many different things yeah. to achieve one result. So you can take a sport like uh, rugby or American football where, yeah, they've got to be able to sprint fast and they've got to be able to tackle and grapple. But in MMA, you have to be able to do that whilst being kicked and punched, whilst mm -hmm getting back up off the ground whilst being held in those positions for extended periods of time with your body being placed at very, very odd joint angles that you don't necessarily have control over whether you're in those joint angles. Mm -hmm. that's, um, why I, that's why ice hockey players love MMA so much because there's a lot of this. <laughs> there's a lot of similarities in the, in the ice hockey match there as well. Absolutely. Um, but again, with, with ice hockey, you might be pinned against the side of the rink for five, 10 seconds yeah. in MMA, it could be four minutes. Yeah. And then on Something top of else, that, isn't it? yeah. And then on top of that, there's, there's the issue that just before doing this competition, they've reduced their body mass by 10, 12, 14%, which brings another layer of complexity to the training. Mm -hmm. So the main thing that we wanted to do with the first, I'd say the first half of my PhD study was to actually quantify each of these different types of training that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Can we quantify the striking drills that they're doing? Can we quantify the wrestling drills that they're doing? Can we quantify the jiu-jitsu drills that they're doing? Can we quantify the things that sit in between each of those? So the drills which are designed to take the striking into a wrestling format. Mm -hmm. Can we quantify the drills that they're using to go from a grounded grappling into a standing position? Can we quantify the work that they're doing in the sessions in an attempt to improve their fitness? Um, now, the question came, how do we actually go about doing that? How do you quantify the internal load and external load of such a complex uh, action? Now, in terms of an ambulatory sport, so a sport where athletes spend most of the time on their feet, running, jogging, sprinting, walking, that can be done quite easily and quite well using heart rate. Yeah. MMA, those heart see, rate... Endurance sport's great, right? You just get on a bike and off you go. Absolutely. But in MMA, because it's not an ambulatory sport, because they do spend a lot of the time in isometric uh, actions, in iso iso isometric movements where they're not necessarily moving, mm -hmm. you might spend 20 minutes of a training session flat on your back, just trying to keep your hips in position as part of the drill. Is heart rate going to reflect that? Possibly not. If you have a, a, a wrestling session where you're constantly going from being on the ground to standing, being on the ground to standing, those constant changes in blood pressure, is that going to reflect in the heart rate? 
So heart rate might not necessarily give us a strong indication of the internal load either. So we were essentially left with using RPE, which is a rate of perceived exertion to give us um, an overall gestalt of yep. the training of the internal training load. Um, and actually started this process with the idea that RPE is okay, but it's subjective. Now I'm now I'm very much of the opinion that it's quasi-subjective, but being mostly objective. If it's set up correctly and the participants are trained appropriately in how to interpret and use the RPE, it can give you a really strong indication of not only what is the cardiorespiratory system doing, but how much strain in the muscles being placed under, how difficult are they finding it being in a knee on belly position or being pressed against the cage physically. How difficult is a session if they're taking repeated leg kicks or repeated body shots? I think it gives a really strong indication of that particular type of training. And, and Chris, can we uh, pause it here just for a second, you know, for yeah. folks listening in, if they're not familiar, can you give us a quick definition of RP and then maybe revisit, you know, you talked about if we set it up in a certain way, then we can get some really good data. If you could then shift over and walk us through what some of those adjustments might be to ensure that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so rating of perceived exertion was a tool developed in the late, uh, early to mid-70s uh, by uh, Borg, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and the original scale went from 6 to 20. So 6 being absolute rest, 20 being as hard as you've ever possibly worked. And that scale was developed basically linked to heart rate. So at rest, mm -hmm. your heart rate will be about 60 beats per minute. At maximum intensity, will be about... 200 beats per minute and everything in between. Um, then in the 80s, they developed the CR10 scale. So we're only going from 6 to 20. It goes from 0, which is complete rest, up to 10, which again is maximum. Now, this 0 to 10 scale is mainly based around the uh, anchoring statements as you go up the scale. So starting mm. from light, very, very light, moderate, hard, very, very hard maximum. Um, and this is the same scale or similar scale that was then used by uh, Carl Foster to develop the session, uh, sessional rate and perceived exertion scale, which we use to determine internal load. Mm -hmm. Now, how the scale works is when you're working with the participant to use this scale, you should spend a couple of weeks or at least three or four sessions where you sit down with them and ask them, how difficult did you find that session? So let's say you're doing a Let's say you're doing a wrestling session. You would ask an MMA fighter on this scale of zero to 10, how difficult did you find that session? And they might point at six. Yep. Then the next day, you might have them do another wrestling session and say, okay, how difficult did you find this session today? And then they'd point at that on the second day, they might point at number eight. So then you'd ask them, okay, why was this different to yesterday's session? Was this session harder or easier than the previous session? Was it... Um, was it more cardiorespiratory strain? Was it more muscular strain? Was it more impact? They get them to really think about why they are choosing that particular number. Mm -hmm. Then when they're giving you a few answers, then you could say to them, okay, so based on what you just said, was yesterday's session still a six or would you change the rating of that session based on what you've just experienced, what you just told me? And they might say, no, it was still a six or actually, yeah, I'll change yesterday's to an eight. So then they start to get a mental anchor on what the different statements on the RPE mean based on what they've felt and experienced in that session. Now, there's a few different studies that, um, that have discussed the optimum number of times you need to do this with uh, athletes, and it seems to be around three or four times. So if you have three or four training sessions where you talk them through, why did you choose this number? What are you linking it to physically? How, uh, when you've experienced that feeling in the past, how, where would you rate that on the scale? If you do that over three or four sessions, then it comes pretty set uh, set from then on. But they will then be able to recall, okay, last time this was an eight. I didn't feel it was a difficult this time, so I might put it down as a seven. Or this time it was really difficult, I'll put it down as a 10. Whereas normally it might only be down at a six, but I can understand I'm putting it as a 10 because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So those anchoring statements do make RPE a really robust, quick, easy measure, which is why I feel it's, it is quasi-subjective, but I feel it's more towards the objective than the fully subjective. Yeah, I mean, it definitely can be tremendous. And it, a quick tangent here, in terms of team sport, football, as you mentioned, soccer, basketball, 
I find sometimes in certain sports, athletes just generally tend to be better. I mean, we're going to talk nutrition here, like a weight-making sport, like a combat sport or an endurance sport where nutrition is so tightly tied to a performance outcome, the buy-in and compliance can inherently be a little bit higher. Um, or as we might see with American football or rugby, they got a lift. And so they're already thinking about nutrition where some of the higher skill sports like basketball or football, some of these things are not necessarily as straightforward, let's say. I was wondering from your experience with using you know, the RPs with football players or your colleagues experience, do you find any differences between them and the, and the fighters or similarities with what you just described? Um, in terms of uh, how hard they rate a session or? Yeah. In terms of their sort of compliance and, and, you know, how well they actually provide you the data, because like, you know, from what you describe, obviously with the fight sports, you can see how it's so valuable and how they would be quite engaged some other sports we could see players start to more in stick and ball um players start to just provide answers without truly reflecting or we start to feel like we're getting some of these answers that are you know they're, they're not really bought into to providing as clear a picture as mm. as what we might get from an again endurance or or, or a fight sports i'm just wondering your your experience with that or thoughts on that or if that's something that you've seen yeah, um, within within the team sports that I've worked with, I've found that getting compliance from team sports is nigh on impossible. And I don't know if that's because it's the um, well, what, what we're getting, what we're really getting into is the culture of each sport, aren't we? Mm -hmm. yeah. How many how many sports have a culture at these levels where they are used to doing these kind of things on a daily basis, and how many sports have it? built into the culture where the athlete sees themselves as the product and their body and their load as the career, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now in combat sports, I've worked with people who have gone from being ultra compliant, will do absolutely everything to the letter as soon as you ask them, to as soon as you've asked them to do something, you know straight away on the face, they're not going to do it. And then there's no point you asking them to do RPE for their, for their training purposes, not necessarily talking about research purposes, but for training purposes, there's no point asking them to do RPE because they're not going to do it. You can just see straight away and everything in between. Now, I think it comes down to if you're able to help the athlete see how it's benefiting them and demonstrate that benefit to the athlete relatively early doors, then I think you will get that buying. It's if mm -hmm. the athlete doesn't see benefit to what they're getting from it. So with the MMA fighters I work with, our first two weeks of working with them, I'll start getting them to fill in RPE and fatigue scales before they even start their training fully. And I'll sit down with them in the coach and I'll help them to see, right, here we can see this day that you thought was low intensity, it was actually really high intensity based on what you told me. Or mm -hmm. You, 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 you and your coach told me a couple of weeks ago that you try and build in rest days and hard days, but we can see here there's actually a flat pro profile across two weeks. So we're not mm -hmm. getting those hard days and rest days. So I tend to use that tool to get them a buy-in for, uh, sorry, to get buy-in so they can see what RP will tell us about their training. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The fights I'm currently working with, they I'd say they're about 70% compliant. I've worked with fighters in the past where the first week will go well and then it just stops happening. If anyone can uh, give me any ideas of how to make it 100%, how holy is because I think we all struggle with this, don't we? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it is great data as well when it is clear. Um, and to your point, with younger athletes and the more this becomes just part of what they're used to, it's amazing how it, it is bought in. They can feel and understand the reason why and then it, it just becomes second nature rather than I'm sure you've experienced with depending on the age or the generation of the athlete, it almost feels like another item on the to-do list. And so navigating that can, can sometimes be challenging. Um, tremendous. Well, I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent with that question. Now, as you're starting to understand the demands of the sport and getting a, an assessment of internal load, where does your research take you to next? So the, the study that we did around the internal load of training, the, main thing that we found from that was that over the eight weeks that we observed uh, a group of 14 MMA fighters over the course of their normal training, 
there wasn't any change in their internal load or their fatigue across eight weeks or even between the eight weeks. And even more telling was that in this group of 14 fighters that we worked with, seven of them, just from dumb luck, seven of them happened to fight during that period and seven, seven of them didn't. So without us trying to, we ended up with a nice experimental cohort there. Yeah. And what we found was that the training between the group that fought and the group that didn't fight wasn't any difference at any point during the training. The only time the training load changed was the week of competition. So the seven guys who had a fight, the week of competition, everything just stopped because it's weight cutting week. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was no tapering. There was no change in intensity or change in load for these fighters. They were just doing the same thing as everyone else. And then the week of competition, it just dropped off completely. And very similar, uh, very similar finding was uh, found by Nazar Udin, who is at, uh, I think he's now at St. Mary's Twickenham University, where he found again, five weeks leading up to competition, everyone does the same thing, week of competition, they just stop training. So my main thing I want to work on over the next couple of years is start to find ways that we can introduce periodization into MMA training sessions, mm -hmm. introduce tapering into MMA training sessions so that what the kind of things that every other sport does, undulated training load, uh, two-week pre-competition taper, peaking at the right time, can we find ways of that being built in to the MMA technical, technical tactical training sessions to provide these improvements to their performance. That's one of the big things that I want to work towards over the next couple of years. But even saying that, there's a lot of challenges in combat sports. So in any team sport or even track and field, it's relatively easy for a coach to design undulating training periods with a two-week taper because mm -hmm. in team sports, they know when the competitions are and all the athletes have to be ready at the same time. For sure. In, in track and field, they know when the competitions are. Everyone needs to peak at the same time. In combat sports, if you've got 20 fighters in your gym, they could all fight on completely different weekends, one after another, six months apart. You could have someone fighting on a Friday night, someone on <laughs> a Saturday night. You could have someone who's getting ready for an MMA, an MMA fight. Another two people are getting ready for wrestling competitions. One person's decided wow. to take a boxing match. How do you manage that? How do you design? Got to, got to enjoy the, the eye of the storm, right? Exactly. So I think the that that's why I think this is going to take five, ten years of different studies to try and find a way that the coaches can build undulations and and uh, tapering into their normal training sessions without having to completely throw the bath out uh, the bath out with the water. Sorry, the bath out with the water. The baby out with the water. Yeah and still do their normal training schedule, but uh, tailor it to each fighter who needs to get ready at certain points. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's amazing how complex a problem it is, which is at the one time daunting and at the other time exciting because there's so many, you know, being a researcher, so many questions to answer. If we zoom out for a minute to 30,000 feet and just look at the terrain now of, of you know, what are some of the limitations? What are the th some of the things holding some fighters back strictly from a performance nutrition standpoint you know, if you had to think of some of your top things at the moment when you're working with an elite fighter areas that you're looking to to support or look for some of those marginal gains you know, what are some of those areas for you well the I'm, I'm, and i'm going to be talking about this point not from a nutritionist standpoint because that's not what i am i, I see myself very much as an applied physiologist more than anything mm -hmm. but within combat sports and mma in particular the big issue that we always have to deal with is the weight cut so mm -hmm. throughout a uh, training uh let's say they do a 12-week training camp at least half of that time their training is going to be based around making weight getting the body mass down so they can get within to their weight category now mma fighters cut anything from a third to a double the amount of weight that fighters from other combat sports do so a boxer might cut five to six percent of the body mass mma fighters will cut 10 to 12 percent of the body mass the largest percentage i've seen i think was in andy Cap and andy casper's paper with um, the fighter who cut 18 percent of the body mass leading up to competition oh God. yeah just absolutely wow. insane um but even saying that that 18 percent and i think that might be close to the norm than we think so the other studies that have been done around um 
weight cutting, it tends to be around 12 to 14%. But those were either the athlete trying to remember how much they cut mm-hmm. or people studying them over the last three or four weeks. weeks. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the fighter who cut 18%, that was tracking them over the full 12 weeks. So they cut a huge amount of weight, which means they reduce the amount of fueling that they take on. So they reduce the amount of carbohydrate, they reduce the amount of fat, they just reduce the amount of food in general mm-hmm. whilst trying to train two, potentially three times a week. Uh, sorry, two, three times a day. A day, yeah. Times a week whilst trying to get fitter, whilst trying to get better at the skills. So that fueling is one of the key things that all combat sport athletes are going to struggle with and need to get a grip of. And I think it is entirely cultural, culturally led because it's all very much culture in combat sports where you have to be lean, you have to be fit, but you have to get ready for your weight cut and you have to do a drastic weight cut in that final week. And it's mm-hmm. only recently, it's only really in the last five to 10 years that there's been any focused studies on, well, what, what is the best way of doing that? How do we yeah. fuel our athletes so they can train but still make weight? And it's only really people like Dr. Carl Langan Evans, um, Dr. Reed Real, who have really dug into this topic over the last few years and really start to make waves and make uh, inroads into how, what is the best way of doing this. And Carl's last paper that came out last year was with a Taekwondo fighter where he mm-hmm. tracked the Taekwondo fighter over, it might have been four months, uh, but tracked their energy intake, gave them enough food each day to make sure they were above their energy availability requirements while still training, while still making weight. And he demonstrated really well that you can provide enough energy availability to keep them healthy, to keep them training, still make weight comfortably, but still get stronger, faster, fitter, and better at your sport. And it's it's madness that combat sports are 150 years old, but it's only mm-hmm. in the last 10 years they've actually started to think, well, is there a better way of doing it? Is there a, is there a better way of protecting the athlete and helping them to perform? Yeah, it is, it is amazing how things have shifted in the last five or 10 years. And had Reed Real on the podcast uh, a couple seasons ago talking about, you know, some of the research that he's done. And he mentioned with that making weight week, I think, I believe it was about 8% of trying to have athletes within that 8% threshold um, during that week. Is that something that uh, still looks like the target in the research? And I guess this is, you know, the second question would be, I guess we've got to try to get them towards that number if they're starting at 14 or 18%, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the 8%, there's very little research out there that shows that the 8% or the 5% are magic numbers or magic markers. That's, I think. Heuristics? I think so, yeah. Those numbers tend to be used more of, well, we know we can do this without the adverse effects that we're going to see fighters collapsing on the scale where they're going to be struggling to get the last few half kilogram off on that final night. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any real data that shows that these are magic bullet numbers. And there is quite, okay. a, there's quite a bit of data that shows even at the 5% level, they're still losing some performance, uh, either in fitness tests or actually in the ring or, or on the mats. So um, reinforcing that this gradual process, if slower and more steadily we can do this, then we're going to be mining some, some potential big wins there for maintaining performance, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest thing that we do need to look at is at which point are the fighters themselves actually starting to think about getting their weight down? Because we do, even just anecdotally, we see regular famine and feast from combat sport athletes. Uh, Paddy Pimblett is a perfect example of that at the moment. So on fight night, he'll look like a lean, high-level professional elite athlete. Two weeks after the fight, he looks like your mate down at the pub who just lives off pies and, and yeah. lager. Um, and, you know, absolutely not criticising him there at all, not judging his choice or his life at all, but that is common in combat sports. Is there going to be, well, I suppose what I'm saying is, is there a requirement to cut 14, 80% of body mass because there's body mass there to lose? Or are they starting the training camp out of shape or not prepared to cut down that body mass, 
is that something that can be worked on around the camp? Are athletes training optimally year round? Or is it a case of I've got a fight booked in eight weeks, now I need to get in shape? We, I don't think we've still got a clear answer for that yet. I was going to say, Chris, with even just the timing of fights throughout a year, I mean, is there a certain number that coaches, you know, when you speak to researchers, coaches, that looks like it might be kind of the ideal in a sense of in a sport like MMA where these fights can be decided or announced or proposed to a fighter and they sort of have to take it, a lot of them, if they're not at a certain level, they can be fighting quite a lot in a certain year. And so is there a number to, to prevent this? You know, one could appreciate that if a fighter has to restrict so often that the likelihood then of blowout consumption in between would, would increase. You know, is there, in your mind, a number that might be more ideal for in a perfect world if a fighter could control that? That's, that's a wonderful question. And it's, it's, <laughs> I think it's going to be individually based. And I think it's also going to be based on the person's training age, the competition age, and also how many weight cuts they've actually performed. Now, mm. the, I know several fighters at, let's say, the intermediate level, so in the first eight, nine, ten fights, they want to get five or six fights a year, every year, because they want to build up the record. Skills and everything else, fight experience. Exactly. And they also need the money. it's their job they need to get sponsorship money they need to get paid for fighting they've Mm. got mortgages a lot of them have kids to feed so on and so forth Um, but then once you start getting up towards the upper levels so let's say they start getting to Bellator PFL UFC they've still got bills to pay they still want to make more money and at that point they're thinking oh no I'm, I'm 29, 30 I need to get these fights in so even though they might only want two fights a year they're in a position where they have to take three or four fights a year. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget, in MMA in particular, the fighters don't really get a say in when they fight, who they fight, or how often they fight. It's largely a case of the promoter will email you, there's this part and this date, take it or leave it. And they kind of have to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, a good way that we, oh, sorry, a good model that we might be able to look at is the IMAF, the International MMA Federation, the Amateur World Championships, because they have a setup where over a week long tournament, if you get to the finals, you might fight four times in that week and you have to weigh in every morning. And you might go to, let's say you're a British fighter, you might go to the Europeans in March, fight four times. Then you might book yourself on or qualify for the Worlds in November and fight another four times. And then you might have a couple of fights in between. So yep. I think that will provide us a really good model to find out, well, what are the effects of fighting and weighing in so many times over the course of a year? Is there an upper limit on, let's say, let's say could 5% body mass reduction be the upper limit for multiple weigh-ins? Or could it still be safe and effective to go up to 7 8%? Are they weighing in and cutting weight so many times that actually two or three percent might be the upper limit to make it safe and effective for you in the long run at this point we've absolutely no idea but it's it's a real key question there mark yeah i guess the other thing i think about with fighters i mean we see you know as training intensity and volume increases we're going to be more likely to catch colds and flus if we're not fueling as adequately we're more likely to be struggling with upper respiratory symptoms or infections and so in a sport like MMA or, or combat sport where we're touching and grappling and doing all these things, is that a challenge for athletes of just being able to stay cold and flu-free? Or, or what does that look like? Or even just those, those rundown upper respiratory symptoms? What, do you, what have you seen in your experience? Well, this is one of the things that we tied into the uh, training load study where we tracked the fighters for eight weeks. So alongside the training load and the fatigue, I also had them, well, part of the fatigue questionnaire that we used had a question I've caught uh, I've caught colds, flus, infections more regularly uh, this week. And that was the only question, surprisingly, that didn't really change at all and stayed relatively low over the eight weeks. It, so it's based on a one to seven Likert scale, one being not at all, seven being very much so. Mm-hmm. And on average on the group, on the first week, it stayed around about one or two on the Likert scale and didn't really shift from that over the eight weeks. Whereas my legs felt heavy. That started at five and didn't really shift. Um, I felt more stressed at college, home, school, work. 
that started off around about 3 or 4, didn't really shift. So I was quite surprised that the rate of flus and viruses, infections, did stay relatively low because they are underfueled, which makes you more susceptible to illness. They are involved in the sport where your training partners sweat, grease, face, gunk ends up in your face on a regular mm -hmm. basis. And they are training to a relatively high intensity. So I was kind of expecting that to be quite high and stay quite high. But I didn't see it. We didn't see it in the data. And just from an anecdotal standpoint, you don't tend to see many gyms or many clubs talking about, oh, there's so many people missing because they've all got flu this week, or there's a load mm -hmm. of colds going around. Just anecdotally, it doesn't seem to happen. Now, is that because it is such a, a physically intrusive sport where you are swapping body fluids on such a regular basis? Yeah. Does it mean that everyone's already got each other's germs and stuff, potentially? Are there other factors? Is it is it because it is a sport where people are so or are so conscious about wiping their hands with alcohol gel and wiping their feet as they come in and step onto the mat? Is that reducing the amount of infections that come in? I don't know, but it's certainly something that I have noticed that is relatively low in combat sports. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you think on the back end there's any changes? You know, oftentimes when we get in this really intense period, we're able to get through it and then once we're done the fight or done the camp and we can actually relax, that's when people tend to get sick or cold or run down. Anything on that side of things? or Potentially. Um, I know there's a couple of fights I've spoken to who after their, after their last fight, they did end up with, uh, he thinks he ended up with flu. So that could be something to do with it, but he's also got three young kids. So who knows? <laughs> well, I feel with the three young kids, it's definitely the quickest way to lack of sleep and lots of exposure is not a good combination for staying cold and flu free. Uh, Chris, anything else? Uh, I mean, I imagine obviously throughout your research, lots of different things uh, jump out at you, but other sort of surprises or areas that, you know, listeners might find, you know, surprising in, in terms of some of the data that you collected. Um, oh, in terms of surprising. Um, or okay. influential. Yeah. Yeah, impactful, influential, or whatever angle you feel is most uh, appropriate. Yeah, no problem. Um, so there's there's two key things that have come up in the in the research over the last couple of years. <clears throat> First one in terms of their training, we understand from talking to the coaches that the aim of a training camp is to get them in shape, ready to perform, and also reduce their body mass, ready for their weight cut. We did a study as part of the part of our as part of the PhD, and these data are actually going towards a larger study that I'm doing with Dr. Carl Langan Evans and Professor James Morton at John Moores, where we're looking at the changes in VLT max, strength, and impulse before and after a training camp. We're doing it for MMA fighters and boxers. Now, the MMA data that we've got was part of my PhD. And mm -hmm. we found that over the course of a seven-week training camp, the, the MMA fighters start off with relatively average VO2 max and relatively weak in terms of squat, bench press, um, upright, uh, sorry, uh, prone row, and a couple of other movements. So they start off very average fitness, relatively weak. And after seven to eight weeks of focused training, ready for competition, absolutely nothing changes. We go into the competition, still with very average fitness, still relatively weak, still relatively low power in, oh, uh, from counter movement jumps and reactive strength index. So even though the training camp is apparently designed to make them stronger, fitter, faster, more powerful, it doesn't seem to do any of those things. They start off weak and relatively low power and they finish the camp weak and relatively low power. Now, I wasn't necessarily surprised by this because I've spent 10, 14 years looking at how MMA fighters train and seeing how they train and understanding the processes that they go through. And we also noticed in the training load study that very, very few of them do any regular strength and conditioning. Uh, I think we, out of four, 410 individual training sessions, there was only 63 of those sessions which were strength and conditioning sessions. And two-thirds of those were done by one person. So there was one fighter in the cohort who was okay. really on top of their strength and conditioning, 
and everyone else hardly did anything at all. So I wasn't surprised that they didn't improve over the training camp. But I think it's really important that that data now exists and that once we've finished off uh, analysing the boxers' data, we get that data out to show that we do need to change something about the training camp. Um, now, their body mass does reduce over the six to seven weeks. So mm-hmm. they are losing fat mass. They are losing body mass because they are getting ready for competition. But they're yep. also losing fat-free mass. They're also losing muscle mass as they're approaching competition as well. Now, is that due to the increased technical tactical training load? Is it due to the lack of strength and conditioning? Or is it due to the lack of fueling that they have over that six to seven weeks period? It's probably all three in combination. So I think those data really support the changes to the way MMA athletes athletes train within their technical tactical sessions with the addition of structured gender conditioning that really needs to be brought into the sport. It's tremendous to have that sort of data to just to you pointed out earlier, some of these cultures are slow to change. And when we can show them the data to say, hey, you're losing fat-free mass, this is not the way that we want to be achieving this final outcome. Layering onto that, you know, you talk about Carl's study in Taekwondo over that course of being able to get there in a more slower, sustained way and protect some of that fat-free mass. And now, you know, between showing, highlighting the problem and being able to show the roadmap to the solution, it's tremendous. And, you know, as a practitioner in that kind of real world setting of then applying the nutrition strategies, again, I find, you know, in endurance sport and weight-making sports, at least there's, it's, it's part and parcel with the sport to actually really have to focus somewhat on what we're consuming to be able to just participate in the sport, but it's still difficult. I mean, fighters are competing three times, training three times a day. Like you said, there's bills to pay families at home. What are some of the biggest hurdles when we're actually trying to implement some of these more evidence-based strategies to be able to get the athletes to the weight? Um, again, I'm not, not talking as a, as a nutritionist, but from, from my standpoint in terms of trying to make the athlete stronger, fitter and faster, I'm yeah. constantly going to be telling them you need to make sure you're getting in at least your basal metabolic rate worth of food and fuel into your system. Now, the closer that gets towards weight cut time, the less agreeable they come to those <laughs> suggestions. Um, but for understandable reasons, because they they most of them do have an understanding that carbohydrate makes the body work, but carbohydrate mm. also makes the body bigger. So they do mm. start to kick back a bit against, well, I need to make sure I'm cutting weight at this point. And you also see at that point, they start to be less willing to do the strength work and less willing to do the cardio work for obvious reasons. They're having to reduce how much food they're taking in. So they're feeling yeah. more fatigued, they're feeling more tired. And they do start to get concerned that, well, if I'm feeling tired now, if I come in and do some trap bar uh, jumps with you, I might start to get injured. Mm-hmm. Brings back to conversation, right? But this is why we need to fuel, and this is why we need to be ready to fuel. Now, the big problem with helping athletes in that situation is, again, it kind of comes back to the practical realities of what these people are doing. So if they're working with me, that means that they've hired me and they're having to pay me. Mm-hmm. If they want... Uh, a nutritionist to make sure that their food intake and their refueling strategy is optimal, then they also have to find money for that as well. Now, if a fighter has children and a mortgage and a family to pay, uh, to help, that becomes very tricky to do, which Mm. in the early stages of a career, arguably when getting these things right is most important, it's going to be very, very hard, very, very tough. So, I try to give them advice where I can in terms of refueling, but I'm also very aware that that's not my area. I'm not a nutritionist. I cannot give people targeted advice. I can just give them little bits of advice here and there based around their training. But the practical realities of the sport they're doing and their real life at that that time of their careers, that is a big, big hurdle. And again, it comes down to their individual situation. If they're able to hire both of us, fantastic. If not, then... It comes down to myself having conversations with people like Carl, people like James, uh, people like uh, Jody Sullivan to get their advice and bounce ideas off just to give them some information to help them. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing how between just the cost of things and then, of course, palatability of the athlete and you know their typical fueling strategies or foods that they like and sort of navigating some of those things ends up throwing you know a few uh, a few more 
hurdles into the mix, if you will, to be able to help them achieve those things. And, you know, if, if we continue on what you mentioned there, kind of the evolution of your research, what do you, whether it's your own research or in the sport, you know, what do you see some of the, those major questions that need to be answered in MMA that, you know, you're looking to do in your work and that you're hoping to see in the, across the, uh, the body of knowledge? Um, so I, I kind of see the research going into four key areas over the next 10 years. Um, the first key area is very much around the training and performance. So what are the actual performance requirements of MMA? Physiologically, what do MMA fighters need to do in the cage? We still have no idea at this point. At this point where we assume they need a high aerobic capacity because they are performing for 15 to 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, which if you said to someone, right, I want you to go and do high intensity work for 15 to 25 minutes, you'd call that aerobic work, wouldn't you? Yeah. In MMA, we assume the same thing. Got no data to support it yet. Uh, we also assume that they need to have a high rate of force development because they have to move fast. They have to be able to kick and punch hard and take, take people down. Again, there's no data to support it at the minute. We also make assumptions about the energy requirements of the sport. So most combat sports have an aerobic energy requirement around 60 to 70%. For MMA, we don't know. So that information we need and we also need the same information for the training sessions. So what are the physiological consequences of competing? What are the physiological consequences of training? How can we make those two things match up? The other side is around the weight cutting. Mm-hmm. So we have some data around weight cutting in professionals, absolutely no data around weight cutting in amateurs. And in fact, that, that's true of all amateur MMA. There is no data about what amateur MMA fighters are doing in preparation for IMAF tournaments or what they're doing at the IMAF tournaments. And we, wow. don't, and we don't really know what the difference between three five-minute rounds and three three-minute rounds that they're doing the amateurs are. Now, luckily, um, I do currently work alongside several members of the, uh, the IMAF board on their athlete weight management task force alongside uh, Clint Wattenberg, Carl Engen Evans, uh, Dr. Mike Loosemore, and a couple of other people. And that's one of the things we're going to do over the course of this summer. We're going to plan out a couple of studies to find out what are the weight-making practices of amateur international MMA athletes? What are, what are they doing in and around competition? So that we can start to build up strategies for them as well and find out what is the best way of helping them. Um, and the big, the big question around weight cutting at the moment is, does it actually improve your chances of winning. The data is very split on this at the moment. There's some studies that show there's no effect of weight cutting. Um, and there's some studies, one from a group in South America. Uh, I think the lead author was, uh, her, her surname was Farrow, I think. And they did a study using CSCA, California State Athletic Commission data. So they had mm-hmm. about 2,000 fighters in this cohort. And they found that at the beginner level so people having the first few fights mm-hmm. the amount of weight you cut didn't give you a better chance of winning at the elite level ufc bellator pfl it didn't give you any any improved chance of winning in the in the intermediate level so lfa those sorts of organizations cage warriors the person who cuts more weight has a better chance of winning but only in, in the intermediate level yeah why is that what why why is that <laughs> happening we don't know yet. And it comes back to we don't actually know what the requirements of the sport are. So do we continue working with fighters to reduce body mass by 14% if it's not actually improving their chances of winning and it's leading on to all the health issues that comes with that? Or do yep. we start working to change the culture of the sport so everyone starts to reduce how much body mass they're cutting, maybe everyone moving up weight class, still fighting the same people, still getting down to weight, but minimizing the health risks. And that's the final topic that I think needs to be key over the next 10 years, the health of the athletes, particularly around concussions and long-term damage to the body as well. Now, concussions is obviously a key area in the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other... I mean, it is a fascinating area to be in because there's so many different elements of MMA to be to be answering questions and researching. So it's, it's, it's awesome to be able to pick your brain here, Chris, and we'll definitely include links to your work in the show notes. Um, 
yeah, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your tremendous research? Um, yeah, so if you are, if you do have a university email address, you can find all my research on researchgates.net. Um, if you're not part of a the university, then please email me on c.kirk at shu.ac.uk. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, which is at chriskirk underscore ASP. Um, I do have an Instagram account, but I, I never use it. I can't figure out Instagram. So, um, But in terms of uh, moving forward, if anyone is interested in becoming a researcher or becoming an academic, um, then please contact me at Sheffield Helm University to talk about either, be, uh, either being a master's student or a PhD researcher with me. I'm very much happy to hear from, hear from you if you're looking at studying any of the topics that we talked about today. Amazing. Well, heck of an opportunity. We'll definitely include, uh, you know, the, the details in the show notes as well. And, you know, again, Chris, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today. You know, last, last thing for you in terms of, uh, you know, your own practice with your athletes, you know, what are a, a couple of the, the big rocks, the, the key messages that you're trying to give your athletes as you're leading them from, you know, the start of camp through into, into that fight night? So the, the big message that I always give to the athletes I work with is, your body is your career. Your body is what you are selling, for want of a better phrase. If your mm -hmm. body is functioning optimally, then your career is going to work better. So you need to do everything you can to make sure that your body is functioning as well as it can. That includes getting stronger, fitter, faster, but also fueling it and working around the more intense training periods. Your body is your career. Tremendous, Chris. Very well said. Appreciate the time again. No problem, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.